It is uh, moving into awards season now. All mm. the great trailers are starting to drop. We've had a whole bunch of them in the last week. The uh, Terrence Malick uh, trailer just dropped today. Looks beautiful. Yeah, as and, one would expect. But uh, we were just talking about it before the show. I am, I am through. The, I am to the moon and beyond over the trailer for Dolomite is my name. Oh yeah, Eddie Murphy. I, Eddie Murphy playing Rudy Ray Moore, uh, a legend playing a legend. Yeah. And uh, here is one of the things that I think is most fascinating about that, is that uh, the all, there's there are two classes of, of films from the black exploitation era. There are those that were actually made by black filmmakers mm-hmm. with black money for black audiences, mm-hmm. which includes everything from Shaft. Well, Shaft was a studio film, a studio but, yeah, film, but black filmmaker. It was yeah. directed by Gordon. Yeah, yeah. Gordon. Yeah. There's stuff like Black Caesar, directed by uh, Larry Cohen, mm-hmm. who directed a lot of these, which were made by AIP and other straight-up exploitation houses, uh, and they were they were designed to be crossover films on some level to sort of say, hey, this is a hip thing. But then there's stuff like uh, Sweet Sweetback mm-hmm. and, and yeah, Dolomite. Melvin Van Peebles. Yeah, and Dolomite, which, uh, you know, Rudy Ray owned the negative to that mm-hmm. outright. He owned every piece of that film, and he was the first, first I mean... Uh, independent filmmaker of any color to do that. I'm not even sure there were white filmmakers that owned their own negatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you got to go way back to the to, back. To, to, to the teens to to like the Lincoln Motion Picture Company and and, and Noble Johnson and his but yeah. but, but, but Oscar Michaud and those kind yeah. of guys. But in the modern you know relatively modern, modern era, era no. modern studio era, yeah. And and um, you know, a, a amazing figure, Rudy Ray Moore, uh, just a total pioneer. And here's that film and. It is being directed by Craig Brewer. Yeah, the film we're talking about is is is, is, is uh, Dolomite. Yeah, uh, the original Dolomite, Rudy Ray Moore. The original Dolomite, yeah, yeah. The, the Eddie Murphy film. And now the new film, directed by Craig Brewer, who did Hustle and Flow, mm-hmm. and written by uh, Larry Karashevsky and and Scott Alexander, who of course did Man in the Moon yeah. and Larry Flint and and you know City Slickers and all that stuff. Not not City Slickers. That's uh, Babalu and the other guy. But yeah, Babalu uh, Mandel. And, yeah, but yeah. but you know these are a bunch of white guys. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a bunch of white guys who are now who have reverence for what was originally kind of a fringe black exploitation film that has acquired such a cultural cachet that it is now part of the broader conversation. Yeah, yeah. It is. I mean, you know, it's. Uh, it's it's just priceless. Yeah, interesting coming on the hills of uh, I guess I guess what were we, what were we calling that thing that shaft thing uh, that that came out? It's not a remake. It's a uh, kind of some, a some kind of a sequely kind of rebooty rebooty kind of whatever the hell it is. <laughs> uh, and then and then of course about a year before that the Superfly yeah. remake. I guess yeah. that, you know contemporary remake total of that. remake. So so you know these things are just sort of in the zeitgeist in a particular kind of way. But a, but this one. I think is is despite the fact that you have Eddie Murphy yeah. and of course uh, Rudy Ray Moore, this comedian, yeah, who created this character Dolomite. Dolomite was the character created by the comedian Rudy Ray Moore. Yeah, lest people not understand what's going on here. Um, uh, yet it seems to be the s- most serious of all of these reconceptual reimaginings uh, of these black exploitation era films. Yeah. It seems to be the one that's pointing itself uh, at an Oscar nomination, at least for Eddie. Uh, but I see a lot of good work being done on that trailer. Lunell, the comedian, uh, I yeah. see a lot of interest. Wesley looking very interesting in that. But now, movie. what do you think about Wesley Snipes playing Durville? Durville, frankly, he's a little too edgy to play Durville. Durville he, was was not the you know. It looks. I mean, because that's that's a funny thing to me. I would not have. I, I never in a million years, if I'm casting, I mean, Eddie Murphy is Rudy Ray. That that's yeah, a no-brainer. no brainer. That problem. just that's no problem. But if I'm thinking about all the different parts. 
I would have cast. Uh, I mean, th- there are a lot of. Well, Mike Epps is already in the movie. See, see, that's the thing. Mike Epps actually looks like Durville Martin. Yeah, and, but, but that's who I would have cast. Uh, I would too. Did he's already in the movie, but I would have cast him. Um, um, uh, but I somehow could even it looks see, like it works. I could even see Jordan Peele has a sort of Durville Martin, he does. and plus he with the with the comic timing and all that kind of. But but Wesley can do the comedy. People forget. You yeah, know? Wesley has timing. Wesley has timing, and he does. He hasn't gotten to do comedy a whole lot. To Wong Fu, yeah, you know he he did it, um, but. Uh, that's something we haven't seen from him in a long time. So I can oh, going I, back to those uh, baseball movies, those uh, major yeah, yeah, league. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, right. That's all right. the way back to that. Yeah. So he can be funny. He you can know, be funny. But, but in terms of just looking like and being uh, being correct in that way, uh, yeah. I, I, you look just about every black comedian in LA yeah. is already in the movie. I so I eventually, just, I suppose you had to cast somebody else. But. I can't. It looks like they they are restaging scenes from the movie absolutely picture perfect. Oh, the thing with the machine with, gun, with the machine with gun, the, and the white with the white suit with all the squibs. <laughs> that's, that's you know, and in and in the bed when the, when they bring uh, the ceiling down. I mean, all that stuff. It yeah. just it looks like they're gonna have a lot of fun. With um, it. Uh, Rudy Ray, uh, who was like we were talking about this. Rudy was you know plus 40, 40 well plus forty before any yeah. of this started to happen for him. Yep. He had, you know, he'd been doing other things. Uh, kind uh, you know, one of those sort of guys who came out uh, from the diaspora. Yeah. When all these black folks came out west, some went uh, to Harlem, some came uh, Lit, went 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 right through Jim Crow mm-hmm. and the the Northern Migration and uh, you know World War II and the Civil Rights Era. Mm-hmm. I mean, he lived through all all of that. of that, all of that. And what's interesting is that when he arrived here, late sixties, early seventies, Hollywood really was a place where just about anything could happen. Where a brother. Yeah. Uh, could become a movie star. We forget that in the early 70s, during the making of these movies, a woman, Pam Greer, was an yeah. above-the-title action star, walking around movies with a shotgun, doing exactly what Steve McQueen was doing in movies. Not making as much, much money, yeah. but in terms of the context, she was an above-the-line, a black woman, above-the-line. Yeah. You know, and so this is just so strange to me that 40, 45 years ago now, um, it was in some ways easier for you know black and brown folks to sort of pull these yeah. things off uh, than it is now. Now the system sort of has overwhelmed all of that. It might be coming around again because you can go out and get a 4K. Well, you were just telling me about a new yeah. a new 4K something. You go and get a 4K camera and you get these things yeah. done. Uh, so you know, it's uh, and it looks like they're definitely tapping into that. Yeah, and it just judging from the trailer, it looks like they really do want to capture not just the the the, the comedy of it. They're not they're not doing Undercover Brother. They're not just saying, "Isn't this funny? Let's laugh at it." But they they do seem to recognize, and I think Craig uh, uh, Craig Brewer Craig Brewer has those sensibilities too. That as do you know Karashevsky and Alexander because mm. they've done that. Which is I mean, and, and the People versus Larry Flint, you laugh at it, but you also people forget that's a drama. That's a drama. Yeah. So and the same thing with Man in the Moon. Yeah. There's an absurdist element to what they do, but I think they I think they get the pathos very well, and I think this is. Um, this is gonna uh, it's gonna be it's gonna surprise people. Netflix funded too. Yeah. They're gonna position it for awards. Apparently, and, uh, Netflix. This town is gonna resolve itself down to Netflix and Disney, uh, or, or 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 labels. Amazon, or, 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 Amazon, or Amazon. Mix, maybe yeah. Amazon will be in the mix. Yeah. I'm not so sure about Amazon being in the mix because it can do other things. That's true. And why put up the fight? You know. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, so I, I, I know five years from now, it, whatever the names are, the products are gonna be. The products of Disney Studios yeah. or Netflix Studios—I'm almost sure of it. It's going to be really interesting because uh, as soon as as soon as the Redstone family exits 
their businesses, Viacom, CBS, Paramount, that's all going to get sold to somebody. Yeah. And and I have a feeling Universal is going to get it. But yeah. yeah. Anyway. Or Jeff Bezos, one of the other. Well, I uh, got a bunch of PBS stuff, a bunch of amazing PBS stuff. So I'm going to I'm gonna roll through some of this stuff uh, relatively quickly. Um, again, our our uh, our moon our moonshot uh, anniversary fiftieth anniversary of the moon landing stuff continues to deliver really really great material. PBS has a Blu-ray chasing the moon. This is a Robert Stone uh, American Experience documentary that is uh, yeah. And I hate to say that they're all really really great, but they are all really great. Uh, this is three discs, six and a half hours, and. Uh, taking yet another angle on the space race and uh, in that ex- incredible moment in the 1960s yeah. when uh, astronauts became superstars and uh, and the people behind them and how it all happened. It's really, uh, it, it's really very, very impressive. And six and a half hours, you're going to think, gee, do I really want to invent? Yeah, you know what? You do, because yeah. it's just, it's history. And uh, there's European money in this as well, which is is really really interesting. But it, it there's a lot of material in here I had never seen, a lot of footage I had never seen. And um, the thing that's really nice about Chasing the Moon is that it's not just focusing on the political and on the personalities. It gets into the science as well, and all of the innovations and how they had to create a lot of this stuff from scratch. Yeah, you know, it wasn't they they weren't saying, oh, there's a great piece of software that this company writes. I mean. Everybody writes software now. Yeah. Everybody codes now. Everybody builds gizmos. They didn't have the software. They didn't have the gizmos. They yeah. had to sit around a bunch of engineers and a bunch of people at, at NASA and just they had to sort of invent it from scratch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's new amazing. engineering, new science, new math. All, all the you way. Know. And then we've also got, uh, and that's on Blu-ray. So, uh, and then on DVD, everything else is on DVD. Really good stuff here. I'm going to go through it as quickly as I possibly can. First Horse Warriors uh, from Nova. This is uh, going all the way back to when uh, humans domesticated horses, not just to get from point A to point B, but to um, to integrate them into every other aspect of your life for you know w- fighting, obviously, and that's primarily the the angle here. That it, um, it 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 introduced a whole new way of uh, of conquering other peoples and expanding territory. It's we don't think about what the horse did, but horses were without horses, we'd still be roaming around in yeah. you know mountain enclaves and caves. Uh, so really, really extraordinary. The nomadic people who who just changed history uh, from Frontline, Trump's trade war. This is in uh, collaboration with NPR. This is. Um, Changing day by day, to be honest. Literally, as as I'm speaking right now, uh, a bunch of tariffs that were yeah. set to go in effect on China have been delayed until December. Yeah, set so, the stop, stock market back up. Yeah, so, uh, you know, this is an ongoing thing. So this front line is designed to, with its own obsolescence in mind. It sort of asks more questions than it means to offer answers to. Uh, but it also goes into... Um, the the underlying rivalry between the U.S. and China, uh, arguing that this is not just about Trump, it's not just about trade, it's not that there really is kind of a, a new Cold War brewing, yeah. and that it is oh, it, it is includes deep, territorial waters, it, all that stuff. So it goes into that as well as to what the 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 source of this is, and uh, doesn't come up with any answers. This, it's, as protesters in Hong Kong are creating a Tiananmen-like. 
not not Tiananmen because it's not in China, but no. but a Tiananmen-like uh, situation situation in yeah. China. Uh, I don't know about you, but you know, look, I was in the Air Force for for six years, stationed in, in the Far East. So I can tell you this right now: this this, this is going to all end very badly. Uh, unless, unless uh, you know, it spreads inside China internally. Yeah, I know. Yeah, unlikely, but uh, you know, it's always possible. You never ever know. Uh, another front line: the last survivors. Uh, this is just uh, profoundly beautiful, and it reminds us that um, as we are now seventy some years past the end of World War II. We have very little time left with the last living uh, Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. They are becoming like the World War II veteran generation, a smaller and smaller group. And it makes me sad in a way to think that there will come a time in my daughter's life mm-hmm. when there will be no more firsthand yeah. survivors around to tell that story. Yeah. She will never... I've met Holocaust survivors. Yeah, yeah you, you know? and I both. And it, it, and it, is, a, it is a different thing. You will never engage in any notion no. of Holocaust denial no. after you've humanly set down with a Holocaust survivor. That That's will it. go away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know. You know, uh, people who can tell you what it was like the day that they were put onto a train, the day they arrived in Auschwitz or, or Bergen-Belsen, the day that they, they saw a loved one killed. The way they were separated from their families and sent off into the uh, – yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, you know. You know, uh, to hear those accounts firsthand is is really vital. And uh, it, it's – so it is important to have at least a record on uh, on uh, on DVD, on tape, on wherever these these things last as part of the, part of the, uh, the show up project. That Spielberg has been so good in getting going. So, uh, in any case, you can never get enough of these. Um, this is uh, directed by Arthur Carey, and it uh, it takes you know it 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 doesn't uh, displace any of the others. It is complimentary. It's an hour long. It's not trying to sort of overreach, um, but it is it is looking at uh, kind of what these pe- how these people feel as they approach the ends of their lives, having survived the greatest tragedy of the 20th century, and now they've been able to get to the end of their lives. And there's a certain philosophical quality to it. Uh, another great front line, the abortion divide, which, of course, continues to be – it's never really gone away. Uh, it kind of ebbs and flows. And uh, they go to uh, Pennsylvania to look at uh, – you know, talk to people on, on both sides of the issue and to uh, see where we are, where we've come, and, and try to anticipate where we're going to go and why this, just, uh, this issue doesn't seem to go away. It's an Again. issue back in flux as the Supreme Court uh, is changing yes. ever more conservatively yep. over the – last few years yep uh kilauea hawaii on fire an installment of nova about a about an hour long and uh the, kilauea has erupted constantly over my lifetime and will continue to uh, the hawaiian isles are of course a uh, a volcanic line of islands and as that tectonic plate continues to move uh the volcanoes there continue to create new islands and uh kilauea is the one that by pays the most attention to because it's always just blowing off and sending giant lava streams to wipe out neighborhoods in very, very slow motion. And um, so this looks at it in, in the light of its recent spike in activity and uh, trying, you know, anal- takes that as a leaping off point to look at all the rest of the volcanoes in the Pacific and the general um, media- tectonic 
uh, volcanic activity in the Pacific, and uh, again, what this may mean for the future of Hawaii. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, it's not quite like the uh, Werner Herzog documentary. It goes into on the, volcanoes yeah. because it doesn't have Werner Herzog saying things like "molten magma," <laughs> which I love. I just uh, want to hear Herzog say "molten magma" over and over and over. Uh, from BBC Earth, uh, which aired on PBS, Rivers of Life, Nile, Amazon, and Mississippi, uh, three of the most epic rivers on the planet, and uh, this is a three-part series that goes into what makes them different, what makes them essential to the their various parts of the world, and uh, how they operate, what makes them, you know, uh, why do we, why do we. Why are we so consumed with these three epic, legendary uh, uh, rivers? It's really interesting. The Nile is, of course, the world's longest river. I used to think that it was the, uh, the Yangtze, but it's not. It's the, it's Nile. the Nile. Yeah, the interesting. Nile. And, you know, the Nile flows in the wrong direction. Yeah. That's the funny thing about it. Yeah. That's why ancient Egypt called the northern kingdom what was actually the southern kingdom and vice versa. Because yeah, they their world the river was flowing north. Yeah. Their, river, their world was upside down. Because of the Nile. It's fascinating. Uh, the Amazon is just, you know, amazing, and everything there is way too big, including the bugs. Mm. And uh, then the Mississippi needs no introduction. It's the it's the heart of America. It's my river on St. Louis, on the, on, the, on the banks of St. Louis. Yeah. Without the Mississippi, America would not be America. No, no. Transport, yeah, 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 you know, the Erie Canal first, but later the, yeah. the Mississippi was the mode of transportation. Not to yep. mention it gave us uh, the writings of Mark Twain. Yeah, uh, riverboats yeah. and yeah. commerce and uh, everything else. Uh, we've got from American Experience, Woodstock, three days that define a generation, just as the uh, anniversary Woodstock. Uh, yeah, uh, all these anniversaries from the late but, 60s. But it went kaput. They, yeah. they had a, a whole new Woodstock planned, and it just it didn't yeah. materialize. That is so, that is so good. It, it, it's like... Watching the most uh, extravagant and best failure you've ever seen, everything <laughs> just goes wrong. That's they do true. they do it all wrong. These young guys, and, and what I like about that doc is it starts yeah. well before the actual concert. Yeah, two or three years when they start thinking about yeah. this and putting it together. These young guys, you know, uh, raising money and and all this kind of stuff, and and then it just sort of works its way into the actual thing. And not a whole lot of performances in that doc. No, you, you no, get, no. You get Richie Havens, but you get to learn that Richie Havens wasn't supposed to start the concert. He just happened to be there. What's in, what, what, what blows me away, especially watching this, is we had the Moon Landing, the Manson Murders, mm-hmm. and Woodstock within weeks. Yeah. That's kind of amazing to yeah, me. yeah. All within, not j- just all the same year, all he, within weeks. Uh, all while they had war. Was percolating raging. and raging uh, underneath it all, you yeah. know. And so, you know, sometimes when, I, when we get all excited about stuff, and yeah. you and I, we were kids when all this yeah. was going on. But I, you know, all of this stuff lingers in my memory. I don't know it how, does mine too. but it definitely lingers in my memory. And sometimes I have to think, eh, whatever with today's news. <laughs> That's true. Uh, from Frontline, one that is uh, very, very disturbing uh, because it, uh, it it's called sex trafficking in America, and we don't want to believe. You know, we we like to pretend that we have uh, we've gotten beyond slavery. We've gotten beyond yeah. all of these issues that are that are part of our past, part of other countries' past, part of other countries in lesser parts of the world. Mm-hmm. But it goes on, mm-hmm. 
and it, and it works up. and it comes right through the heart of America. Sometimes, literally, the heart of America. This it, this is not something that is happening in some other city. No. This is not something that's happening on the other side of the tracks. It's not something that's just happening to little Russian girls, nope. little Taiwanese or Indonesian girls. There are middle class white girls being sex trafficked. And see, uh, this is what disturbs me about this: is that I, uh, watching this documentary, I think, okay, some of my daughter's classmates. Mm-hmm in due time, could wind up falling into this. Yeah, make a mistake here or there. And there may be a house down the street from me. Yeah, yeah. Literally in my neighborhood. Yeah, they're not all in the hood. Where this is going on. Yeah. yeah and a, it is... Uh, it and is, that, that film makes that a little bit more clear. It's a little it, chilling. It is really, really chilling. And you uh, you realize what an incredible uphill battle law enforcement has to, uh, and prosecutors as well, to 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 stop this, it is a, it is a pernicious and uh, embedded practice all over the world, and it comes right into uh, the middles of our neighborhoods. So, sex trafficking in America, not a happy doc, mm. but it, it's a, it's an important one. King Arthur's Lost Kingdom uh, from the Secrets of the Deadline. Uh, look, everything about King Arthur is just utterly fascinating, and uh, the the origins of the 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 myths the story the uh, Mort d'Arthur uh, by Sir Thomas Mallory all of that from a literary standpoint is one thing but when you get into the archaeology of it and you realize that there may very well be uh, actual actual evidence of things that foreshadow that are that that are sort of the roots of the literary history of King Arthur and all the you know the poems and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and all that stuff that you learn in, in English class that there's an archaeological and historical component to it that may underlie it that's really interesting and uh, so this goes into everything behind the folklore and whether or not there really was an Arthur and who would he have been and uh, and what was the socio-political situation of his world at the time really really interesting very very fascinating stuff and it's an ongoing field of study because so much archaeology just changes day by day uh the would you be mine collection of mr rogers neighborhood this is 30 classic episodes from a about a 20-year period uh from 1979 to about 2000 and uh it is absolutely wonderful it brings back a lot of memories i watched this stuff when i was a kid you see him age through this thing but you see him have the same heart and uh you know it we're we're in kind of a rediscovery of mr rogers now thanks to the documentary and of course the forthcoming tom hanks film and uh it 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 really is uh it's nice to rediscover this and it gives you despite all the other crap going on in the news this gives you a lot of hope and wonderful guest uh guest uh guests on his shows as well uh, it's really, really beautiful. 30 episodes of Mr. Rogers, as good for your kids as they were for my generation. That Tom kids. Hanks trailer is very, you know, I, 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 yeah. I, I, it's encouraging. It is. Uh, because like, not that I, the, I, I knew that they would probably get yeah. that right. You yeah. Know, because Tom's not going to let them get it wrong, but it's very encouraging. Uh, talking about the abortion battle earlier and the changes in the Supreme Court, that brings us to this front line called Supreme Revenge, the uh, the battle for America's highest court. Uh, which is really, really interesting. We, of course, have all lived through this. This is not something that's been off the news. This, uh, this is right there front and center. But what this does, what they do very, very well at Frontline is they try to expand the, the scope of it. So they, they, they kind of zoom the lens back a little bit and look at how we got here and going all the way back to the, the fight over Robert Bork and uh and it sort of it gives you a broader perspective on the fight over the high court and what it means um and it gives you some a really interesting perspective into the workings of the high court as well uh from nova saving the dead sea we may not realize this a lot of people may not have it might not quite dawn on them but the uh, the dead sea 
it, it was never really the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea was always very living. Well, they just called it the Dead Sea because it's so salty. However, it is actually dying now. Yeah. The, the irony. Uh, it, it is starting to disappear. It's the, the, the actual level. It's starting to evaporate. And that's been going on now for a, a good 40-some years. And um, it is, uh, this is very, very troubling. And uh, you may not have uh, followed this necessarily. It's kind of a thing, you know, more in other parts of the world, in the Middle East and elsewhere. But, um, but yeah, the, uh, the, the Dead Sea is a, uh, and I didn't see it when, when I was in Jordan. Some of the other people from our, uh, our group went to it, but uh, I didn't see it. Yeah, so, the irony uh, of ironies that the Dead Sea is finally dying. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, there, there are all kinds of scientific solutions for what to do, as there are with all these things. It's just a matter of, you know, having the money and the wherewithal and the, and the, yeah. And the will. Yeah. Uh, another one from Nova, Inside the Mega Fire. This one hits a little bit too, too close to home. Uh, I've lived through these, too many of them. Yeah, boy. And uh, this uh, specifically focuses on the campfire, which is more a forest fire than a brush fire. That was the Northern California fire that just raged uh, endlessly uh, and, and just burned a ridiculous, burned out the uh, entire town. And uh, while that was going, we also obviously had our, our Woolsey fire down here in, uh, in Southern California, which uh, devastated, I mean, uh, you know, friends of my daughters, yeah. get people we know from school, they lost their homes. Yeah. So um, I, I have too much, uh, I'm too, a little bit too close to this. But well, the problem of it is some of this we talk about as the new normal, uh, yeah. which has to do with uh, climate control. Some of it yeah. has to do with things that utilities do. I, that privately owned utilities, do. and and these they're not the same. Yes, and I, you and I have talked about this, yeah. and I'm not going to get into the details. Oh. I have very strong opinions about it, and I was actually interviewed for a documentary about it. Uh, we'll wait until that documentary comes, <laughs> comes out. out. Yeah, uh, but yeah, actually, a, a very, a very, a very famous and successful documentarian um, is making a uh, documentary about this subject, and uh, I was one of the interview subjects. And I will say nothing more about it. This is, th uh, there shouldn't be any such thing as privately owned utilities. There, I said it. Yeah, that, that's that's <laughs> just, what happens. That's me. Yeah, privately owned utilities, and, and they're going bankrupt, and they're yeah. going bankrupt because yeah. of this. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so yes, that's that's worth watching, especially if you have not lived through it. If you've lived through it, it's gonna it's gonna hurt. Uh, from the American Masters line, uh, Robert Shaw, man of many voices, really really wonderful. I look, I'm a big classical music buff. We're gonna talk a little bit more about classical music later, but uh, you know, I, I there are certain you, you can't keep track of every conductor, yeah. and uh, Robert Shaw is a conductor I was not terribly familiar with. So uh, this was really interesting to kind of go back into who he was and what, uh, why he was significant. And really quite interesting. Um, this goes into more than just the music. This goes into his social activism, the fact that he performed Bach in the Soviet Union, the fact that he was the first conductor to uh, break the color barrier in the South. Uh, the fact that he, you know, what he did during the Cold War to sort of bring audiences together on both sides of the Iron Curtain. I mean, really a significant figure and uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful, um, obviously a brilliant musician at the same time. The Collegiate Chorale and, uh, you know, it just it, very, very, really fascinating. And all of this during, you know, from the Depression era on to uh, the post-war period. Um, really a fascinating figure. Really a really great American Masters, and uh, no, most of the American Masters center on people that we already know. Robert Shaw, somebody that I was not familiar with. But here, I'm going to say something else, too, as long as we're on the American Masters thing. 
the two best American Masters productions ever yeah. were multi-part series, and neither of them has ever been released. No. Oh. One on Chaplin, one on Keaton. And I've got to wonder why. Mm. So, mm. I'm just, it continues to, to puzzle me, but there it is. Might be a rights thing someplace, yeah. I suppose. Uh, uh, go some, new some new movies. Hit some new movies. New movies. Interesting uh, squad of stuff that we have over here. Um, uh, on Blu-ray, uh, in, including this fairly cute little movie uh, called Plus One. I remember when this came out. It's you know a cute little movie uh, about a couple who, as they roam into their late twenties, uh, find that all their friends are getting married, and they're having to go to all these weddings, which means they have to get dates to go to all these weddings. And of course, they're being pressured and pressured and pressured by family and their friends, particularly ones who are getting married, to in fact get married. And everyone always wants to know if, if they're possibly going to marry the person that they're on the date with at that wedding, which of course they are not, <laughs> <laughs> because they just got that date to go to the wedding. So they decide instead to simply always be each other's plus one. And the movie goes exactly where you think it might go. It is nevertheless... Funny and kind of charming, just like it says in the back of the box here. Um, it, it, you know, look, sometimes these little movies that, that uh, you know, slip into the whatever uh, uh, don't quite get as much notice as they ought to. These are cute little movies. And I can remember a time when a, a movie with this plot would have starred Julia Roberts or maybe uh, Cameron Diaz, or maybe both Julia Roberts yeah. and Cameron Diaz. Why not? As a, memory, as a matter of fact, I think I saw that movie. Uh, nevertheless, this is cute. Special features includes deleted scenes, some extended scenes. Fun little movie, which I rather enjoyed. Charlie says, uh, stars uh, um, um, one of my Matt Smith, one of my favorite Doctor oh, Who's, the best. Know, uh, new new Love era Matt Doctor Smith. Who's. Mary Heron film. Mary Heron, you know her from American Psycho and yeah. uh, Betty Page and sure. a, a, a number of interesting films. Going. Mary Heron's career is really interesting. She goes way back. She's one of those uh, female directors, women directors, uh, who at, actually managed to start carving out a space for herself thirty years ago, late eighties, early nineties. You can see uh, her name on uh, episodes of Homicide: Life on That's the Street. That's right. That's right. And stuff like that before she got her, you know, big break in about 2000 or so and knocked out that American Psycho film and, and, and built a bit of a – and it has had quite a uh, – so, you know, Mary Heron doing good work here. This is decent work. It kind of uh, re-envisions uh, uh, the whole, the, the whole uh, Charlie Manson thing, not, not, not the way Quentin did it. <laughs> No, she goes inside the prison system, and it's about this psychiatrist who's who's working with these women, particularly the women who fell under Charlie's yeah. spell and trying to see if she can break the, you know, sort of psychological uh, prison Old. that he built around. And yeah, yeah. You know, it's really interesting stuff. Matt Smith playing a very sharp and, and creepy, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a movie about that sort of thing. Uh, Hannah Mary, uh, Sosha Bacon, uh, Marion Rendon, and Suki Waterhouse with Matt Smith. And that one's not bad. Uh, the Last Command is a story of a just horrible uh, submarine sinking. And you back know, two thousand. This is a lot like uh, another submarine movie uh, that 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 I had to review on Film Week this last year. And uh, this is the the more realistic one. This is the one that's about the actual about the, the actual incident, sinking, the yeah. actual the actual Russian sub, yeah. that, uh, that, that the we all under the Bering Sea back in two thousand twenty three sailors. Yeah, we watched that whole thing unfold. Yeah. And uh, this I had to cover this on Film Week, and it's I, I think this is a really really good movie, but it just got no play here. Yeah, Colin Firth, Matthias Schoenart. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's which is a, I don't know a, a sad sort of thing. Mostly it's about what the families were doing back yeah. in, in order to get some sort of movement 
out of the bureaucracy of Russia. I remember it. I remember it being very specifically about the Russians sort of stonewalling yeah. uh, the Americans everybody as, else. As, and everybody else as we were attempting to try to help them save these 23 soldiers. Uh, but Vladimir Putin wasn't having that, which is very funny given that today, the day, the day of the recording of this, the Russians have had themselves a little, another little nuclear situation. I know. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, about? I do. You know, and I don't know if this is a Chernobyl. I know that they say that five um, scientists were killed, but of course back in 80, whenever you never Chernobyl, know. they said, you know, well, there were two. I, so they lie. Uh, they always lie. Uh, I, I'll say this about this. Thomas Venterberg directs the hell out of this movie. Yeah. I mean, the it is Das Boot-level recreation of the interiors of the submarines and putting the camera where you never imagined he would put it, and it's very impressive. Yeah. But it, but it's still basically just the history. Yeah, yeah, of, of, of this thing that happened when it happened. Uh, teacher, this is a sort of moving and uh, piercing film about a, a, a teacher who is a functional alcoholic, uh, and the only thing is destroying his marriage. It all has to do with something that goes back in his life to his, to what happened with his mother, watching his mother be abused. And he, he sort of held himself together there for a while, and he became a very good teacher, a high school teacher at a private school. Uh, but he is, in fact, a functional alcoholic. The only thing that's really helping him keep himself together are two students that he has uh, as a part of this. And trying to, yeah. to help these two students, that's what's holding them together. There's a kid, a bully, and the bully is particularly focused on these two students. The bully's mm -hmm. father is paid by our friend uh, Kevin Pollack, yep. uh, who's a rich guy in town and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's about what this teacher decides to do in order to protect uh, these, these two students. And, and you know what? It's a pretty good drama yeah. uh, I, that I rather enjoyed. Uh, bonus features includes a short about the making of the film, some deleted scenes and whatnot. Kevin Pollack is particularly good in this movie, let me say. He's a better actor than uh, than a lot of people will give him credit. Yeah, well, you know, because he had that he came comedian, yeah. and, and then he had that really standout uh, performance in uh, that Brian Singer film. Uh, uh, Usual uh, Suspects. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's standout performance in that. He's also really good in Avalon. Barry oh, yeah, Levinson's yeah. Avalon. Barry Levinson. Everyone always forgets he's in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so Kevin, Kevin should have, uh, our friend uh, Rod Lurie, Cast him as the president in his first film, Deterrent. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin plays the president yeah. in that movie. Should have, should have had more shot, Kevin. The Curse of uh, La Lorna. This is a very good film. A ghost movie is what it really is, but yeah. it's sort of the sort of Mexican American myth. Uh, it, it's beautifully, it's beautifully told. You have this social worker and these two children that look like they're being abused because the mother is locking them in a closet. She takes the children away from the mother. Uh, the children, uh, while in the orphanage, uh, well, eventually they come up, they come up dead. They're found in the river. The mother blames the social worker because she tried to explain to her that she was locking the children in the closet to save them from the curse of the learner loca. Now the question becomes, will the curse jump over the... This is some good, scary Yeah, no, it's, lore. it's I, I, I missed this in theaters, and I'm kind of sorry that I did. Yeah, yeah. Good, good stuff. Special features. Uh, it includes a behind-the-scenes sort of stuff and a documentary about the curse itself. And that's the curse of La, La, uh, La Rona with La two Rona. L's. Thank you. Two L's. Yeah, for, for correct me. Two L's. My, my Spanish pronunciation. Mine ain't much better. Yeah, but you got, the, you, got yeah. The, you got the you got the French on there. And the making of a monster movie. Deleted scenes and some storyboards. So there you go. Beautiful. Uh, trial. Uh, by fire. This is a story. Uh, I, I love uh, this this young actor, uh, uh, Jack O'Connell. He came on the scene he in is, a movie called Star Eight yeah. or something like that a couple of couple of few years ago, yeah. and he has just been eating it up ever since. He's a British actor, yeah. and really really strong. And he's been positioned to kind of be the next big thing for a while. And he is he's coming on strong. Is that him in in that uh, Elton John movie? 
No, that's, that's not him. That's no, no, no. Kid. That's the that's the other guy yeah. from uh, from uh, Kingman. Uh, yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I confused him sometimes. Yeah. Those, those guys, but they're right in the same pocket there. Uh, anyway, this is uh, set in 1992. It's about this guy named uh, Cameron Todd Willem, who is accused of a gruesome and horrible murder. Taron Egerton. Taron Egerton. Egerton. Egerton is the other guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, and and then the one woman, not a lawyer, but a woman, a civilian, who realizes that he's being railroaded. That there's all kinds of evidence that's not being looked at, uh, you know, exculpatory yeah. evidence not being yeah. looked at, and that the logic, the logical conclusions being made, by, and it's about her setting out to save him from the electric chair. Yeah, and it's a, you know, a good movie, powerfully told, Jack O'Connell, Lord Dunn, directed by Ed Zwick, uh, of, of, of you know, of all folks. I mean, yeah. Ed was a, it goes by. It's sort of a, a strange thing that these sort of like major it's directors. It's a, it's and a conscience. It's a conscience movie that Ed Zwick wanted to make, so he decided to do it for a little bit of a lower budget. It seems. Yeah. Uh, it kind of it's, it's sort of by the numbers. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's still you know an Ed Zwick movie. It's still really. Incredibly well made and put yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Edwards, his his films kind of you know because for a while there he was a major guy, yeah. and he still is. Denzel but, Washington but he's, films. He's know. focused on Nash. He's been focused on the Nashville TV show, which yeah. he which he's a he's a producer on, and uh, and that's just you know. It, it's an interesting thing that all of these major directors from back in the day have moved their brands onto television someplace. Kind of wild. The brands right? kind of get lost because you know if you didn't know that you wouldn't know that. But the thing of it is that's where they're making the money. You know? and, it's, and it's strange because it's also fragmented. We've talked about this many times, but you know, it's not like back when, if you asked everyone if they'd seen Bonanza, pretty much one hundred percent of yeah. everyone in the country either a saw it Sunday night, was watching it, or b no, they they chose not to, but they knew it was on. Yeah. Today, if you ask people, even Game of Thrones, hey, you see Game of Thrones? I've, I've never not, actually not, seen Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. You get a like, lot. I of know that. A, yeah. there are a lot of people who have yeah. never seen an episode of Game the, of Thrones. The actual numbers are not what the numbers used to be. When, nope. when, when a 30 share literally meant 30 yeah. million people yeah. were watching your show, MASH, and all of that. Uh, this was the sort of a cute comedy, I suppose. Palms, Diane Keaton, Jackie Weaver, Pam Greer. Uh, Celia Weston, Rhea Perlman playing these older women who start a cheerleading squad. Uh, from the producers of Bad Mom and the Book Club and all that kind of stuff. So this is one of those films that you would sort of expect. What's interesting about this film is that in all of this promotional stuff that I have here for it, uh, the one name, uh, not even on the box, associated with this film, and a major role in the film, a role equivalent to all the other ladies' roles in the film, is Roseanne. Crazy. Uh, Roseanne is one of the cheerleaders I in this know. movie. Her name is not I on this know. box, and you would not know she was in this movie if you did, didn't know she was well, in this movie. Well, there's a reason for that. Yeah, you know, that, that, that's the thing that happens sometimes. Nevertheless, uh, it, it's, it's a perfectly heartwarming and sweet comedy. Enjoy it, even with Roseanne. In it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll be okay. Roseanne could be funny what you wanted to. A Dog's Journey. I hate these movies. Um, uh, from the people of a, a dog's purpose and you know, a just, dog's I'm so, shoelaces. I'm and a so dog's tired. Hat. I'm so tired of lost dog movies yeah. and and follow them on their odyssey. I, I, I another one came out uh, this last week. Uh, the the race, the art of racing in the rain, yeah. uh, with Kevin Costner playing the voice of the dog in that one. You know what? It was a dog too. Anyway, these movies are certainly perfectly lovely for folks that are into this zone. I am not. I'm not going to pretend like I am here now. Bonus features. Uh, deleted scenes, extended scenes, a gag reel, probably really cute dog stuff, and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, on Blu-ray, A Dog's Journey. Yeah, it is. Where are we going? Uh, let's do... Let's do 4K now. All right. It's a big week for 4K. 
Big week on 4K. Uh, and we're going to start with the two films. Well, let's just start with the real one. The one that everybody wants to know about. Avengers Endgame. Yeah. Now officially the most successful movie of all time. In Did it make it over earned. the hump? It made it over Kinda the hump. Kind of quietly. Well, so here's, here's how we have to... Uh, Here's how we have to sort of temper this. This is, in terms of inflation calculated, yeah, it is the cost of the movie ticket. The cost of the movie. It is still like sixteen million dollars behind Avatar, down around twenty something or other. (laughs) So it's not. It's not even in the top ten. It's Mm. nowhere, nowhere even close. But in terms of dollars earned, Mm -hmm. it is the most successful film of all time. It is, however, the number two film both internationally and domestically. Domestically, it's the number two earner behind uh, Star Wars, the whatever, yeah. the, the episode, the, 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 whatever, the, the JJ return. What was it? Yeah, the Jedi come back and <laughs> beat your ass. Uh, I can't keep track of it no, anymore. Too much but but um, episode seven, whatever episode seven was, that's the most successful film domestically. It's about $70 million ahead of Endgame. Okay. Internationally, it's still behind Avatar. Avatar is ahead of it by something like $60 million. Okay. Um, but you put all that together, it's number two internationally behind Avatar, number two in, uh, domestically behind uh, Star Wars Episode Seven. That's enough to make it about $10 million ahead of Avatar overall. Okay. So it is the most successful film of all time in terms of dollars earned. Dollars earned. And the Blu-ray is going to be a barn burner. There is no question. But the 4K is where you want to put your money. Look. This is what's interesting. I've been learning this uh, recently as we're doing the short film. My wife educated me on all of this stuff. Most DCPs, Mm -hmm. that is a digital cinema package. That's how you deliver your movies to theaters these days. Not on reels anymore. It's on the old cans. It's on a little little hard drive called a DCP, digital cinema package. Most DCPs are 2K. Did you know that? I did know that. (laughs) <laughs> Which is why when I when I started making my movie and we were shooting on 4K, yeah. because 2K, this is the thing, 2K, uh, you know, after post production, digital manipulation, all that stuff, it, it can, can reach the equivalent of 35 millimeter film. Yeah, and and at the end of the day, most theaters have not upgraded upgraded to 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 project, uh, you know, 4K. Yeah. Certainly not 6K. Yeah. So when you're projecting a good clean 2K, you're projecting the same thing in terms of visual yeah. quality as 35 millimeter film. So in reality, you never really have to be anything more than 2K. Uh, as theaters upgrade to projectors, yeah. they start projecting in 4K in more places. For one thing, let me predict two things: movies are going to get uglier. Yeah. Uglier and uglier. <laughs> the more that number goes up, the uglier the movies are, and they're yeah. going to stop looking like movies. But yeah, I did in fact know that. Uh, 2K. Yeah, it's amazing. So anyway, when you get your 4K Avengers Endgame, it may wind up looking better on your 4K TV than, than it, it looked the, in the theater because the you may yeah. have seen it in 2K. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, it does look spectacular. The CG work here, uh, if you look at even the first Iron Man, it's just it leaps and bounds. They just keep getting better and better. The software keeps getting better and better. And look, Endgame, as a movie, I know it's three hours long. I know you think it's too long. Yeah. But but I think what's interesting is that if you look at the last two Avengers films, they are diametric opposites of each other. Okay. Um, the 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 previous one uh, begins with Thanos, you know, uh, killing Loki and you know, go and beating up the attacking Thor's ship and all that. It's very action oriented. This begins with family. No mm-hmm. CG. It begins with a really intimate moment. It's fascinating. 
And uh, this goes to a really interesting place, too. This mm -hmm. is not on... Yes, it's an action film. It's a superhero movie. But it's ultimately a movie. It's a drama about family. About it's a family. really, really... Every possible configuration of family. Every configuration. We don't need to talk anymore. Everyone has seen this film. So the 4K is gorgeous. Make no mistake. It's got a, you know, a, 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 a thing called Ultra Play, which just lets you get right into the movie. Um, and there are Blu-ray extras on here. One honors Stan Lee. I'm glad he was able to make it all the way through at least the completion of this movie. Uh, there's a little thing on uh, Robert Downey Jr., a thing on Black Widow, a thing on Captain America, deleted scenes, gags, yeah, and a, a whole lot of other stuff. But the, the, the deleted scenes uh, is what interests me the most. They yeah, are always figuring out what what didn't make it into the three hour yeah, movie. No kidding. You know, somebody actually edited something out of the three hour plus movie. But but here's here's what is um, here's where I kind of come down on uh, on Avengers Endgame. Um, this this movie is going to this is kind of a turning point for the Marvel Cinematic Universe mm -hmm. now. The question is where does it go from here? This really puts an exclamation point on everything. I mean it it is it is the end of a certain saga. It mm -hmm. is the end of many characters, which we if you haven't seen it we won't tell you. Um but where does it go from here? Can it match this again? Yeah, well it depends on what know. what new characters are brought into the fold. Yeah. It's. I can see it intends to be. I mean, if we look at that Spider-Man movie, which is post Endgame, yeah, uh, it pointed and terrible. Its, and, and, yeah, it, it it pointed itself at uh, a Guardians of the Galaxy sort of mode. Yeah, uh, let's be funnier. Let's be uh, lighter. Let's not. And then you know now then they're gonna go out into outer space and do whatever they do in outer space. I'm solid. I'm good with Endgame. I, I, with uh, Endgame, I don't need another. I don't either. And then, yeah, I'm good. I don't either. I don't need any more Thors. I don't need any more Str Doctor Stranges. It really, it's very satisfying. And for that reason, I think it's going to get nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I think it's going to well, be Well, the, the window has been opened now. It has. Uh, for, well, for a couple of movies now, actually, the window has been Well, yeah, it all... But certainly Black Panther. Black and Panther and, and uh, 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 the, uh, the Wolverine... Uh, Logan. Logan. That, that got the screenplay nomination. Yeah. So, and even though that's a 20th Century Fox property, but that sort of earned a little bit of legitimacy. And really, it, I kind of it was The Dark Knight. Yeah. The Dark Knight was the one that got yeah. them to go to 10 nominees because it didn't get nominated. So, and, and you know, the, the Joker yeah. winning. Yeah. yeah. Heath Ledger's Oscar. Yeah. That, that too. So it's yeah. all, they that, all kind the, of. The, the, that started to just click these things yeah. down. Uh, to where, you know, who knows, maybe they'll nominate a comedy next So time. Avengers Endgame was number one at the box office for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks until it was dethroned by this godforsaken horrible thing. <laughs> Pikachu. Uh, uh, Detective Pikachu. The uh, Pokemon yeah. Detective Pikachu live action CGI freaking Pikachu thing. I don't get it. Email us, godsdigigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. Explain to me why a live action CGI freaking Pikachu movie uh, was even made and why anybody went to see this. I just don't understand this world. I, I look, I get it. Ryan Reynolds, I don't take anything away from you for voicing Pikachu. They they wrote you a big old fat check and you you looked yeah. at them and you said, "You're going to pay me how much to do what?" Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he and he and he looked at his at his mortgage and he thought, yeah. "I could buy all that boat yeah. payments." Yeah. I could buy a lot for that. Yeah. You're going to pay me how much to do what again? Yeah, it's not like it's going to hurt him. In, no. In, 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 yeah, so. so anyway, anyway, uh, what a what a silly detective thing this is! But look, if you live in this world, that's fine. It's on 4K, uh, and uh, it also includes a a blue the the Blu-ray version. Of this includes a thing called detective mode, which 
is like they try to make a game out of it. It's just it's kind of silly and dumb. And it's also got featurette. So uh, three more 4K titles here. I'm going to save the best for last. Uh, we talked about Alita Battle Angel uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. That's We also got the 4K on that. Uh, yeah, it looks a lot better, actually. Um, it's a better movie in 4K. I guess it's designed to be mainly because of the audio, not so much because of the image. The audio is really, really just encapsulating. It's very, very impressive. Uh, it, it's, it's a much better mix on 4K, especially if you have like a 7.1 system. If you have a 7.1 or if you have like an Atmos system, which would be like a 5.1.2, uh, really, really just wraps itself around you. Very, very uh, impressive mix. Uh, Batman Hush is a 4K animated D- DC original. Uh, they keep finding more impressive ways to tell Batman stories on uh, in animation yeah. than they do in live, uh, live action. action. Yeah, I hope Matt's film really just kills it. A uh, lot of great villains here: Poison Ivy and Catwoman and Joker and Nightwing. It's really uh, it, 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 Superman shows up here too. It's very it's it's a, it's it's a it's a real kind of gathering of. Uh, of, of figures, Nightwing, of course, is is Robin after he has become something other than Robin. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that don't know, but uh, you know the the, uh, the yeah, I, it's really it's very very well written, and it um, it it goes into the the, the hush is the name of uh, well, I don't want to give anything away, but there's a graphic novel that tells the story originally, and. Um, it all kind of goes into Batman's psychotic uh, issues with his own past, and it's uh, it's really it's very interesting, um, really well written. So it, the graphic novel, great source material for this. It's Batman Hush on 4K, and uh, includes a little short called uh, Sergeant Rock. If you know the DC world, you know who Sergeant Rock was, and that's yeah. worth paying attention to. Uh, here's one I want to spend a little bit of time talking about as well is uh, the new Zhang Yimao film, which uh, I am so glad they elected to release on 4K. It's called Shadow. Zhang Yimao for a while has been, you know, his. I was right on board with his very earliest films, uh, Red Sorghum and Judo and yeah. Raise the Red Lantern, which were straight up Chinese art films. Yeah. And then he got into his martial arts mode with yeah. Hero and House of Flying Daggers. Flying Daggers, Jet Li. You know. And this splits the difference. This is like a martial arts film and a Shakespearean tragedy all wrapped into one. Yeah. And it is, uh, it is a supremely cool film. The effects are great. The action choreography by Master Didi. Yeah, who, Master Didi. Who, who did all the, the, all the Into the Badlands. Sherm stuff or Into the Badlands. Um, is all really, really very impressive. It is just gorgeous to look at. But what's really interesting is the story. And um, it is it is palace intrigue. It is medieval Chinese palace intrigue um, where there is a... Uh, where his, his main general has a secret in that he has a double. Mm. And that's what the shadow is. Yeah. The shadow is his double. And... Precisely how that pans out in this battle of warlords and who's going to win the the battle of warlords is um, is really really interesting. And of course, the women in these stories always wind up being, in many respects, more interesting than the men because yeah. the women are the ones that know the secrets and pull all the all the levers. It's a really good film. And uh, I don't know if China's going to submit this for 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 the Oscar, but I, I kind of hope they do. Uh, there is uh, an English language version uh, available as well. Don't bother with it. I don't know why anybody would want a dubbed version of this. 
Uh, the HDR is dazzling. The blacks and the shadows, in keeping with the title, uh, all done, uh, really given great, great artistic attention. It is just absolutely superb. So, Zhang Yimao continues to knock it out of the park with one of the coolest-looking 4Ks uh, of the last six months, certainly the best 4K this week. Uh, it'll really, really show off your uh, your set because it's not really that CGI-laden. So you're, what you're seeing is, uh, you know, there's a little bit of CGI in there, but not enough to really make a difference. It's just a beautifully shot, wonderfully executed, fantastic drama. Shadow by Zhang Yimao. Lovely. Lovely. Uh, so what else we got? These are new, too. Uh, some of them are kind of interesting. Okay. Assassinat. This is a fun little movie, a youth-oriented movie, uh, about these four young astronauts uh, who, after the invasion of Earth, uh, you know, by these intergalactic uh, monsters, really, but, uh, you know, evil aliens, the president has been kidnapped, and these kids have to go to the planet and save the president from assassination. Uh, yeah, that's, my, that's my fun kind of film. Uh, it reminds me of a sort of uh, middle, middle 80s, late... Uh, late uh, late 80s, middle 90s sort of, uh, really, you know, kids and, yeah. and monster movie kind of thing. A lot of fun. Uh, special features, uh, audio commentary with the writer-director and uh, some deleted scenes and other things like that. And, you know, this is, look, the special effects are not fantastic. The creature effects are kind of neat. These kids are all good actors. A fun movie is what I call this on Blu-ray. Uh, Domino, man, this movie was a mess. <laughs> Brian De Palma, De Palma has lost his mind. Uh, just a flat-out mess. I don't understand what happened <laughs> about to About a him. guy whose partner uh, gets killed. He's going to go after a guy who killed his partner. Yeah. A mysterious stranger has to do CIA, all this kind of stuff. You got Guy Pierce and Nikolai Costner-Vawal. The guy from Game of Thrones. Yeah. Everyone, I was the guy who plays this detective. Look, uh, this movie has uh, one thing going for it. There are a number of these action sequences, basically chase sequences, including the ones that it opens with. Those are put together beautifully. They're exciting, they're yeah. engaging, they're captivating. Then we slip into these narrative sequences where the story is sort of being explained. Now, yeah. Well, now we're done. Uh, because none of that makes any sense. And then another chase starts, and we're back in the movie. You know, I, uh, I interviewed Brian De Palma some years ago. My interview is actually in a, in a book on De Palma interviews, compilation book of, of interviews. And uh, I, made, I made so much off of that interview being in that book that I am able now to own a yacht. Um, <laughs> no, You're actually, I'm it. sorry. I'm sorry. I, I take it back. I, I, uh, I, I hoped... I hoped for that. Uh, that that actually never happened. Yeah. I, I take it back. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and I remember him telling me because uh, I, I asked him. I said, you know, you used to make these movies that are very Hitchcockian, and but like with a twist, and uh, now you're. And, was, and, he, and he said, yeah, at a certain point, you get tired of your own obsessions. Yeah, yeah. And I think he's tired of his own obsessions, and he's. I think he's tired of filmmaking. To yeah, be honest. yeah. It feels like he's just. Going through the motions because what else is he going to do? It definitely felt like he directed this one from the truck. Oh yeah, uh, you know Brian's, Brian's a big yeah. guy. Um, Critters Attack, another uh, in the series of why, what's got to be fifteen Critters. Movies. I know, and they br why why resurrect this franchise? I guess I guess so that D Wallace Stone has a job again. Yeah, D Wallace came back. Movie. Yeah, it, it, and I, it, whatever. And uh. it, look, they got a little girl uh, here who's interesting. She's you know, the, the, the Critters Attack and the little monsters. And they do they, they do all the special effects. Yeah. There it is, but I, I, there must simply be some um, strain of money that one can generate by by reusing these titles. You, you yeah. call it Critters something, and you automatically get a berth on the Sci-Fi Network. Yeah, uh, or, or or Shutter, probably in Shutter, the places where you know you can go put the film and make a couple of bucks. If you and and not for nothing, library exploitation. It seems that a lot of these business, a lot of these companies, 
big and small, are in the business of exploiting their libraries. Not a lot of creativity coming from the ground up. They look at the shelf, they see what they got, they rename it, and next thing you know, you're watching Jumanji 5 yeah. or Critters Attack, uh, which is what you got there. Um, uh, a Violent Separation. This is a fairly intense drama uh, about a young man who's a young cop. Uh, his older brother kills somebody. And this young cop has to decide whether he's just going to flat out arrest his brother or help his brother hide the crime. Mm. He chooses badly. Oh. Let us say that. Uh, the young person who's killed has a sister. And that sister he ain't going to let it go. Uh, and I, yeah, I, you know, I, I like that. I, this is a concept for a movie that I like. Yeah. Uh, and uh, with this guy, you know, who who wanted to be good but made that wrong choice, and now things have to be paid for. Anyway, uh, bonus includes the making of a violent separation. It's a, you know, what I thought was a fairly good little movie. So I'm going to give you a name, and I want you to remember this name mm. uh, because this woman is going to become one of the great actresses of her generation. You're going to hear this name a lot. You're going to start to see this name show up in uh, Academy Award-nominated movies. You're going to start to see her name nominated. And you're eventually going to see her win an Academy Award and win some other big awards. The name is Honor Swinton Byrne. And she is Tilda Swinton's daughter. Yeah. And she is every bit as talented as her mom. And uh, that boy, that apple fell really close to the tree. Um, the film is The Souvenir. It's a little low-budget, gritty, British indie uh, directed by Joanna Hogg, who has a, a lot of TV credentials and has done some other fine films. But Joanna Hogg's filmmaking is very restrained. It's very artsy. It's mm. very standoffish, very uh, lugubrious, we might say. Um, it, it's it's strictly art house fare. And the story, The Souvenir, is uh, essentially a tragic love story, but done in a very, very stiff upper lip British way, very restrained way. Um uh, Honor Swinton Byrne plays a young woman who winds up uh, having a relationship with a man who, um, you know, she's a film student. She's making her own, she's trying to work her way through film school, and she winds up having a relationship uh, with a guy who works for the British government. He works in the, in, the, uh, in the Foreign Affairs Office, and he's something of a diplomat and travels, and he's very, played by Tom Burke, he's very restrained and very, uh, you know, he's, he's, a little, he's, he's a little stiff, but he, but he has secrets. And those seek as those secrets emerge, their relationship deepens, but it also causes all kinds of tragic consequences in the relationship, and it, and it goes in directions that you probably both will expect and not expect at the same time. But regardless, and the and the film is not for all tastes. However, what really makes this shine is Honor Swinton Byrne. She is a phenomenal actress. Her choices are always always unusual and amazing, and. Uh, this is the coming of age, and Tilda Swinton shows up here playing her mom. Yeah, she's she's, she's doing her her daughter a solid. She she says, you know what? So my daughter has a chance to really show what she can do. Sure, I'll sign on to your your yeah. little tiny movie and use my name. Yeah, let yeah. my let my daughter get a get a shot. And boy, what a great thing! Good going, mom. Tilda nails it for the daughter. Uh, Honor Swinton Byrne is going to be one of the big stars of the future. Yeah, the next big UK actress. Good stuff. Um, you gonna do a stack over there? Yeah, let me let me go through some of the music stuff here. We got some uh, classical stuff from Naxos. People want to watch their their opera and their concerts and everything else. Berlioz Symphony Fantastique uh, with the uh, Orchestre Révolutionnaire et Romantique uh, under Sir John Elliot Gardiner. This is the uh, perform a performance at the Chateau de Versailles. 
Um, and it is on Blu-ray with DVD as well. And it is just really, really wonderful. Any opportunity to uh, hear Berlioz Symphony Fantastique performed is great. The, but the fact that this is, you know, a, uh, a Versailles performance, part of the Versailles Spectacles line, is wonderful. It's what makes it, it's why you want to watch it and not just listen to it. It's really, really a great staging. Uh, and Sir John Elliot Gardner ju just nails this. It is, it is absolutely delightful. Wonderful music, wonderful uh, performance, wonderful location. Uh, Samuel Barber's opera, Vanessa. Gets a Blu-ray from Opus Arte. Um, I love Barber. I don't necessarily love the, his operas per se, but there. But the music is always great. Uh, this is with the Glyndebourne Chorus and the London Philharmonic Orchestra uh, under the conduction of Jakub Husa and uh, director Keith Warner. It's it's good. It's solid uh, for people who who like that kind of thing. Uh, then we also have a Donizetti opera, Enrico di Borgogna. This is part of the from Dynamic. Uh, it is a world premiere, presumably, and this is with uh, the Academia Montis Regalis. And, uh, you know, what? it's flamboyant. It's like Donizetti. It's a lot of, uh, it's very classical. It's very classically staged. Lots of wigs and, uh, you know, the usual thing. This was recorded in December of last year. It is adequate. Not my cup of taste. Not my cup of tea. Uh, then we have a couple of great discs, a couple of great Blu-rays, both of them uh, based on uh, ballets from the Norwegian National Ballet based on Ibsen, the writings of Ibsen. One is Hedda Gabler, the other one is Ghosts. Uh, both of these are from Bel Air Classique, and uh, it's wonderful. I didn't even realize the Norwegian National Ballet was this prestigious, but they are. They're really good. And I'm not usually a, you know, a huge ballet person, but boy, these are really, really well done. And my sister-in-law lives in Norway, and I'm going to uh, scold her for not telling us about the Norwegian National Ballet, because it is really one of the, it's, it's really quite elite and beautiful staging, beautiful choreography. Um, if you're a fan of ballet or even modern dance, you're really going to love this. The um, choreography in uh, both cases is by, well, uh, Marit Moom Own is the one who directs Ghosts and does the choreography for Hedda Gabler. And then the choreography for Ghosts is also done by China Espidjord. I don't know how they necessarily divide those responsibilities internally, but uh, look, it's great. It's terrific stuff. Then there is also, uh, just from Naxos proper, from their proper line, we've got a couple of uh, different operas here. Uh, one is Saverio Mercadante's Didone Abandonata. Didn't mo watch much of this. Not really my speed. If those names mean anything to you, knock yourself out. The other one is Wolfgang Eric Korngold's Das Wunder der Elian. Uh, this is beautiful. Korngold, of course, the legendary uh, film composer, most famous for The Adventures of Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn movie. Uh, I had a, an instructor in school, uh, Rudy Fair, famous editor who did Key Largo and uh, Pritzi's Honor and a lot of things, who was once head of post-production at uh, Warner Brothers. And Rudy used to tell us about how Korngold would actually compose, how he would put his scores together. And Korngold would walk in for a first screening of a film, the piano at the front of the uh, screening room. He would kick everybody else out, and he would sit down, and he'd watch the movie the first time and just bang out on the piano whatever inspired him, whatever came into his head. One of the great composers of all time, certainly one of the great film composers of all time, uh, a musical prodigy and a genius. And um, this is uh, 
extraordinary music. The story is a mystery, believe it or not, and uh, kind of uh, Kafka-like in many uh, respects. I'm not going to call it Kafka-esque because that doesn't seem to go necessarily with with opera. But, Mm. um, boy, this is really uh, very, very intriguing, a really uh, fascinating story done in a very modern style with his music, Das Wunder der Elian. Really, really cool. Then the last couple here, uh, the World Orchestra for Peace, uh, performing for the UNESCO-sponsored Beethoven Symphony Number no. 9. These UNESCO concerts are always wonderful, conducted by Donald Runicles. You can never go wrong with Beethoven's Ninth uh, Symphony. And then uh, Mozart's Die Zauberflöte, otherwise known as the Magic Flute. Nothing has quite compared with the uh, Ingmar Bergman version of the Magic Flute, but this is uh, quite lovely. Uh, This is a nice staging. And uh, Klaus Maria Brandauer even shows up in this. Haven't seen him for a while. And uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, look, Magic Flute. You can't go go wrong. That's from C major. All right, we got some docs left. Yeah, a few of them over here. Some of them rather interesting. Combat, Combat Obscura. Uh, by Miles Lugosi. This is a fairly. Well, this interior. is that thing that's all edited together. That yeah. the soldiers shot. Soldiers shot yeah. uh, using you know <laughs> phone cameras and just yeah. all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Marines mostly uh, during the years 2011, 2012, in the heat of some of the conflicts, uh, mostly the Afghanistan conflict, uh, but also some stuff that was going on in uh, in Iraq at the time. And and so to put together this narrative, sort of strung together, it's um it's 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 just really an absolutely. Um, uh, you know, a captivating yeah. film, but it's also yeah. staggering yeah. Uh, in, in what it captures and what we see. It's very, very powerful. Uh, special features include an interview with the director, Miles Lugosi. And, uh, you know, what can I say? He's been making these sort of uh, fantastic films for quite a while now, and yeah. this is just at the top of his game. Fantastic. What We Left Behind, looking back at Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, what a fun doc this is. And I was never a huge Deep Space Nine fan. You were. You were much yeah. more into Deep Space Nine yeah. than I was. Uh, I kind of like it when they go somewhere, you know. <laughs> well, they gave him the Defiant a little bit later. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, but, dead, you know, it's like, it was, oh, great, we're just going to stay here every week. And uh, that didn't quite get But you know what? It wound up being um, a really interesting show and a very, very clever show. They found a, a really interesting way of, of reinventing the world of Star Trek. Well, what they did is they brought some characters in, yeah. Worf and, uh, and, and Miles and a few others that were sort of interesting. And then they got them off that station, Yeah, actually. So, you know, they, it became an interesting sort of amalgamation of some of these things. Well, this, this goes into how it was the so-called, quote-unquote, black sheep of Star Trek shows and, and how it was able to overcome the skepticism of fans initially and, uh, and really kind of help expand the world, the, the, the Gene Roddenberry universe uh, of Star Trek. And uh, this, is, uh, on, this is a Blu-ray, and it is a really, really sharp uh, documentary. It's really good. It has some deleted scenes and you know other stuff on it. Documentaries don't really need deleted scenes, but nonetheless... Uh, it's a good Blu-ray. Um, uh, interesting that in recent, uh, well, during during this presidential election cycle, there have been one or two people. I think Andrew Yang is the specific one who's talked about a minimum basic income. Yes, he is. Uh, so this doc is called Free Lunch Society, which explores uh, this notion of a of creating a minimum basic income, uh, which everyone over a certain age would get. Yeah. Um, and and what that would mean to a society, what it would cost, but you know what it might cost. But then again, what problems it might specifically alleviate if everyone had a minimum basic income, which is the, an idea that goes back sixty 
five years. This oh, actually, yeah. goes back much longer than that. It well, it, you know, Friedrich Hayek, yeah. the the famous Austrian economist and, and Nobel laureate, was the first one to propose this. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, and and you yeah, from that side of the from the uh, from the side where, you, but but he proposed it as as an alternative to the welfare state. system. Yeah, and his his proposal, which was always very interesting, was. That you do away with welfare, you do away with Social Security, you do away with medical systems, Medicare and all that. You do away with all of those, Mm -hmm. and you just go with this. And you don't discriminate. If you're a millionaire, you get your— 2,000, whatever it is. 2,000, whatever it is. If you're you're dirt poor, you get your 2,000, whatever it is. Whatever it is. Yeah. Everybody gets exactly the same. And if you want to forego it and send it back, that's fine. But everybody gets that check and and just across the board. And um, nobody's ever really tried that. No. Uh, I know that the Finns were trying a variation of it recently because they've be- just been having all kinds of massive, massive uh, uh, public sector expenses, and they threw the towel in on it. It, yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't do- doing what they needed to well, do. Well, there, 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 there are th- in 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 Alaska. Everyone used to get uh, some sort of a uh, annual uh, stipend that came out of the oil money up there. Yeah, everybody got. Now it wasn't. It wasn't an income. Uh, it's just that there was so much oil money, everyone was able to get to get a certain sort of return there, which is a different sort of thing. But nevertheless, everyone looked forward and understood that every year you were going to get a check, uh, no matter who you were, that came out of the fact that you know uh, leasing rights and all everything was being drilled. And that went on for quite a while. I think Sarah Palin is the one that did away with that. So yeah. interesting stuff. Uh, and then we've got um, Amazing Grace, Aretha Franklin. Which is yeah. just so absolutely wonderful, and you know, one of the great treasures of uh, uh, of, of the American mu- of, of world music. And uh, this is a live recording. Just so you understand, this is not a documentary per se. This yeah. is more concert. But this is basically uh, a well, it's a documentary that is wrapped around the 1972 recording of Aretha Franklin. Uh, performing of her uh, album Amazing Grace mm-hmm. at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Watts yeah. in 1972. And uh, it's it's just a legendary historic moment, and she is... Lost to posterity for many years because the sound was a mess. Yeah, had to uh, be restored. Had to be completely restored, yeah. But what a, what a, what an absolutely wonderful moment in time it was. And, and there's something special about a recording artist when they're not in a recording studio yeah. and when they're in an environment that sort of taps into everything that makes them who they are. And Aretha comes from gospel. Yes, she comes I from mean, gospel music. That's, yeah, her yeah. Ba- that that's, her that's that bass background. That's everything it. else comes out of that. And this is so this is not Aretha in front of the cameras in the Blues Brothers. This is not Aretha in a recording studio. This is not Aretha in concert. This is Aretha back to her roots. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's a beautiful thing. It's One beautiful of the things, things I love most about that movie, uh, you get a uh, a lot of Aretha sitting at the piano. People forget that yeah, she was yes. a she was an accomplished pianist, incredibly good. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. It's so, and, you know, one of those things, really beautiful. Narcissist sister organ grinders is, you know, provocative. I can't call it good. Yeah. But a provocative documentary. <laughs> Narcissist sister is the name of this uh, sort of unknown yeah. performance artist woman. Uh, the most that we know about it is she's a woman of color, and she, she's always in these sort of disguises and this, these very complicated performance art things. And this particular film is, is, is about how she's dealing with the sort of life and illness and death of her mother. Her mother appears often 
uh, in the film. We, we do not actually see her. She's always in some... Look, there's some really creepy and weird and bizarre stuff, uh, particularly the stuff that she's doing in her live performances, her actual performance art. And then there's some really moving and touching and powerful uh, um, instances uh, where she's filming herself with her mother or filming her mother and speaking to, in a fairly poetic way, uh, the impact of her mother in her life, as she, as she knows Beautiful. that her mother is ill and, and passing away. Um, not everybody's cup of tea, this narcissist organ grinder, but you know, if you can, if you can manage it, it's, uh, it's interesting in a certain sort of way. Ring of Fate, Fight the Good Fight, is a, is a pretty interesting documentary. This is from Virgil Films. This is looking at the nexus of the world of boxing and religious faith, uh, both in the lives of individual boxers, but also um, where communities are concerned, communities where boxing is a way out for a lot of kids and, and people who are stuck in a in kind of a dead-end lifestyle, but, they, but faith is also part of the, the, the fabric of the community. Uh, kind of, I think it begs for a little more material, but certainly, you know, it, it blows by. This is just barely over an hour long, but... Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting topic I've never seen treated before and uh, we don't often sort of think of the worlds of sport and the worlds of religion and faith as coinciding but mm -hmm. where boxing is concerned they significantly do, mm -hmm. and, uh, and and so it's a, it is an interesting conversation. Now, all the way back to Muhammad Ali and everything yeah. you know, that, that that's right. every all, all, all of it. Ring of faith. Uh, uh, lies, manipulation, and extortion. Billion Dollar Bully is a very, very interesting doc. It, it's, it's, it's posting the question as to whether or not Yelp, the thing that we all do now, we Yelp everything, yeah, uh, and we get back these answers, these hits of what's popular, what's correct, and, and small businesses, small businesses are starting to beg the question. Uh, 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 whether Yelp is actually reporting algorithmically or however the hell they do it, the sort of reality of what people are choosing to purchase out there, or is Yelp being played, is, has Yelp become a pay-to-play sort of dynamic? Yeah. So that, uh, again, uh, other companies, uh, certain larger companies can manipulate and pay for, and suddenly that algorithm and, and the reality of what folks are actually engaging sort of falls by the wayside. I think it's a perfectly legitimate question. I don't know that they make the case in this in this film here, but uh, they it begs the question. I'm not the yelper that I used to be. <laughs> I put it, I put it like that. Yeah, yeah. Great, great film documentary here. Uh, Margareta von Trotta, one of the great seminal filmmakers of the German uh, new cinema, mm. uh, has made Searching for Ingmar Bergman, which is released on being released on Blu-ray from uh, Oscilloscope. And uh, this is coinciding with the 100th anniversary of Ingmar Bergman's birth. Obviously, that, that's been a thing. Criterion released their giant box set, which will be a, a still a subject of a future show, and we're able to make uh, suitable time for it. And um, this, uh, this just, it's a standard examine the filmmaker by a filmmaker doc, which um, really goes just to the essence of what made Bergman such a significant and seminal figure when he was. She, inter she interviews other filmmakers as well, Olivier Sayas and Liv Ullman, obviously, who worked with Bergman. And uh, it, is, uh, it is just a, this is a great starting point. If you're not a Bergman fan, if you don't know much about Bergman, or even if you do, it's great. It really sums it up in a wonderful way. And uh, there's never been another like him, and there'll never be another like him. Yeah. Bergman S. They call it Bergman S. For a reason. Hell, yep. Satan. Hell, Satan. <laughs> is this is really sharp uh, a, a documentary about uh, people who are not up to what it looks like they're up to. So, um, and, and the, the, the Satanic Tipple is this actual church that was organized by these people, who um, uh, have organized it so that they can challenge all sorts of 
public religious rights that are, are accrued to you know the members of the uh, at least uh, uh, three major faiths, but if, if not others. Yeah. Uh, and and this is what they're actually doing, uh, and, and doing it through the prism of uh, of this religion. This little religion that's about six years old now, quote unquote, re legitimate religion. And it begs the question of whether or not we mean what we say when we talk about religious freedom in this country, yeah. or whether or not we're just being flat-out hypocrites by forcing us. We're, we're, we're usually hypocrites. Yeah, almost always. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And but, you, what's, what's interesting about this, this is so funny. This is just the funniest uh, documentary. You know, the sort of little hypocrisy yeah. point out. It's actually quite funny. Hail Satan. Penny Lane directing this. Penny Lane Mix has made some really great uh, docs, including one about abortion. I think it was called Abortion Diaries some 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, so, as if there needs to be any more uh, examination of the historical Jesus, History Channel gives us uh, Jesus' Life. This is an eight-part, eight-chapter series, originally uh, created for uh, the UK, television in the UK. And uh, it just, it, 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 it basically tries to do an examination of Jesus' life through the eyes of eight different people, eight different individuals. And uh, obviously going to scholars and uh, historical sources and scriptural sources and uh, uh, dramatic recreation. And um, it, it's fine. It doesn't add anything. It's just, uh, it's just sort of a novel approach to a lot of stuff that we've already seen done. But um, it's, it's uh, you know, if, you're, if this is your, if you are a, a really into religious history, it's not going to undermine anything. It's complimentary, and it's uh, it's very well done. It's very nice and polished. So uh, you know, it could be good for uh, educating the kids over the course of Easter or something like that. Uh, another film, uh, creating Woodstock, a documentary film about uh, the creation of Woodstock. I, I may have confabulated some of the events in the in the in the Woodstock doc that we talked about earlier. Yep. Uh, with this one, either way, see them both. One of them features a sequence where Max Yatsker, the guy who owned that plot of land uh, that famously uh, would, 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 uh, would have that three-day concert, um, actually takes to the stage. And I had never seen that before. I don't know whether it's this film or the one we talked about earlier. This one is creating Woodstock, how it really happened. And uh, a lot of this has a lot of performance stuff in it. So either this one or the other one has that moment where Max, a 60-some-odd-year-old man at the time, uh, is, given, is given the microphone so that he can speak to the, to, to the hordes, to the crowds there. And he is just um, the loveliest, uh, most caring man, he, and he gives this wonderfully uh, short but, but, but very moving speech about how he was so happy to have all of those young people there on his farm, how people warned him against it. But he said, no, these kids are good. I know they're good. And it was just a lovely, lovely speech, and Max gave it. If it's not in this film, it's in the other one. Find that if you don't do anything else uh, with these two films and see how that generational divide we thought the separated young people and older people, the older generation yeah. in the 60s, that was a myth. Yep. That was a myth, and yeah. Max proved it on that day. Fantastic. And we go out with the documentary Screwball, which is uh, a, a bit of a wacky doc, but also an important doc. And um, this deals specifically with the the role of steroids in sports and and more specifically in baseball but it's um it it it, it, it the director of this is billy corbin who did cocaine cowboys so he knows the the territory a little bit already and uh this goes into this incredibly bizarre miami subculture of steroids and drugs and that has found its way into major league baseball and it just it, it, it we all read about this and saw it on the news at the time, but I don't think we realized how incredibly 
what what a web of intrigue it was. You mm -hmm. just thought it's a bunch of corrupt doctors and you know people. No, it is so much more like a. It's like some kind of a weird crime novel. It really gets into it. It just the the moving pieces of this are so weird. And to his credit, he's able to uncover them and all the bizarre figures who are central to this. So uh, the documentary is called Screwball, a, uh, a, a, a which. Uh, yeah, I can't tell you anything else about it. It'll, it'll <laughs> give too much away. But it's really good. It's really good. All right, with that, uh, we'll be back next week, and we'll see you then.